Section eight of Reminiscences of Captain Grono. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reminiscences of Captain Grono by Captain Rhys Howell Grono. Jew Moneylenders. One of the features of high society after the long war was a passion for gambling. So universal was it that there are few families of distinction who do not, even to the present day, retain unpleasant reminiscences of the period. When people become systematic players, they are often obliged to raise money at an exorbitant interest, and usually under such circumstances fly to the Israelites. I have often heard players wish these people in almost every uncomfortable quarter of the known and unknown worlds. The mildness and civility with which the Christian in difficulties always addresses the moneyed Israelite contrast forcibly with the opprobrious epithets lavished on him when the day for settlement comes. When a man requires money to pay his debts of honour and borrows from the Jews, he knows perfectly well what he is doing, though one of the last things which foolish people learn is how to trace their own errors to their proper source. Hebrew moneylenders could not thrive if there were no borrowers. The gambler brings about his own ruin. The characteristics of the Jew are never more perceptible than when they come in contact with gentlemen to ruin them. On such occasions the Jew is humble, supercilious blunderingly flattering, and if he can become the agent of any dirty work is only too happy to be so, in preference to a straightforward and honest transaction. No man is more vulgarly insulting to those dependent upon him than the Jew, who invariably cringes to his superiors. Above all, he is not a brave man. It will be seen, from these observations, what is my opinion of a class of traders who in all parts of the world are sure to embrace what may be termed illicit and illegitimate commerce? At the same time, I suspect that the Jew simply avails himself of the weakness and vices of mankind, and will continue in this line of business so long as imprudent and extravagant humanity remains what it is. Two usurers who obtained much notoriety from the high game which was brought to them were men known by the names of Jew King and Solomon. These were of very different characters. King was a man of some talent, and had good taste in the fine arts. He had made the peerage a complete study, knew the exact position of every one who was connected with a coronet, the value of their property, how deeply the estates were mortgaged, and what encumbrances weighed upon them. Nor did his knowledge stop there. By dint of sundry kind attentions to the clerks of the leading banking-houses, he was aware of the balances they kept, and the credit attached to their names, so that, to the surprise of the borrower, he let him into the secrets of his own actual position. He gave excellent dinners, at which many of the highest personages of the realm were present, and when they fancied that they were about to meet individuals whom it would be upon their conscience to recognise elsewhere, were not a little amused to find clients quite as highly placed as themselves, and with purses quite as empty. King had a well-appointed house in Clarges Street, 
but it was in a villa upon the banks of the Thames, which had been beautifully fitted up by Walsh Porter in the Oriental style, and which I believe is now the seat of one of the most favoured votaries of the Muses, Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton, that his hospitalities were most lavishly and luxuriously exercised. Here it was that Sheridan told his host that he liked his table better than his multiplication table, to which his host, who was not only witty, but often the cause of wit in others, replied, "'I know, Mr. Sheridan, your taste is more for Joe King than for Jew King,' alluding to King, the actor's admirable performance in Sheridan's School for Scandal. King kept a princely establishment, and a splendid equipage, which he made to serve as an advertisement of his calling. A yellow carriage, with panels emblazoned with a well-executed shield and armorial bearings, and drawn by two richly caparisoned steeds, the Jehu on the box wearing, according to the fashion of those days, a coat of many capes, a powdered wig, and gloves à l'Henri Quatre, and two spruce footmen in striking but not gaudy livery, with long canes in their hands, daily made its appearance in the park from four to seven in the height of the season. Mrs. King was a fine-looking woman, and being dressed in the height of fashion, she attracted innumerable gazers, who pronounced the whole turnout to be a work of refined taste, and worthy a man of so much principle and interest. It happened that during one of these drives, Lord William L., a man of fashion, but, like other of the great men of the day, an issuer of paper money discounted at high rates by the usurers, was thrown off his horse. Mr. and Mrs. King immediately quitted the carriage and placed the noble lord within. On this circumstance being mentioned in the clubs, Brummel observed it was only a bill duly, duly, taken up and honoured. Solomon indulged in many aliases, being known by the names of Goldshed, Slowman, as well as by other noms de guerre and he was altogether of a different caste from King, being avaricious, distrustful, and difficult to deal with. He counted upon his gains with all the grasping feverishness of the miser, and owing to his great caution he had an immense command of money, which the confidence of his brethren placed in his hands. To the jewellers, the coachmakers, and the tailors, who were obliged to give exorbitant accommodation to their aristocratic customers, and were eventually paid in bills of an incredibly long date, Solomon was of inestimable use. Hamlet, Hulditch, and other dependents upon the nobility were often compelled to seek his assistance. Hamlet, the jeweller, was once looked up to as the richest tradesman at the West End. His shop at the corner of Cranbourne Alley, exhibited a profuse display of gold and silver plate, whilst in the jewel-room sparkled diamonds, amethysts, rubies, and other precious stones in every variety of setting. He was constantly called on to advance money upon such objects, which were left in pawn only to be taken out on the occasion of a great banquet, or when a court dress was to be worn. His gains were enormous, though it was necessary to give long credit, 
and his bills for twenty or thirty thousand pounds were eagerly discounted. In fact, he was looked upon as a second Croesus, or a Crassus, who could have bought the Roman Empire, and his daughter's hand was sought in marriage by peers. But all at once the mighty bubble collapsed. He had advanced money to the Duke of York, and had received as security property in Nova Scotia, consisting chiefly of mines, which, when he began to work them, turned out valueless, after entailing enormous expense. Loss upon loss succeeded, and in the end bankruptcy. I have even heard that this man, once so envied for his wealth, died the inmate of an almshouse. Some persons of rank, tempted by the offers of these usurers, lent their money to them at a very high interest. A lady of some position lent a thousand pounds to King, on the promise of receiving annually fifteen per cent, which he continued to pay with the utmost regularity. Her son, being in want of money, applied for a loan of a thousand pounds, which King granted at the rate of eighty per cent lending him, of course, his mother's money. In a moment of tenderness the young man told his tale to her, when she immediately went to King, and upbraided him for not making her a party to his gains, and demanded her money back. King refused to return it, saying that he had never engaged to return the principal, and dared her to take any proceedings against him, as, being a married woman, she had no power over the money. She, however, acknowledged it to her husband, obtained his forgiveness, and after threats of legal interference, King was compelled to refund the money, besides losing much of his credit and popularity by the transaction. Lord Alvanley To Lord Alvanley was awarded the reputation, good or bad, of all the witticisms in the clubs after the abdication of the throne of dandyism by Brummel, who before that time was always quoted as the sayer of good things, as Sheridan had been some time before. Lord Alvanley had the talk of the day completely under his control, and was the arbiter of the school for scandal in St. James's. A bon mot attributed to him gave rise to the belief that Solomon caused the downfall and disappearance of Brummel, for on some friends of the Prince of Dandies observing that if he had remained in London something might have been done for him by his old associates, Alvanley replied, "'He has done quite right to be off. It was Solomon's judgment.' When Sir Lumley Skeffington, who had been a lion in his day, and whose spectacle, the Sleeping Beauty, produced at a great expense on the stage, had made him looked up to as deserving all the blandishments of fashionable life, reappeared some years after his complete downfall and seclusion in the bench, he fancied that by a very gay external appearance he would recover his lost position. But he found his old friends very shy of him. Alvanley, being asked on one occasion who that smart-looking individual was, answered, "'It is a second edition of the Sleeping Beauty, bound in calf, richly gilt.' and illustrated by many cuts. One of the gay men of the day, named Judge, being incarcerated in the bench, 
some one observed he believed it was the first instance of a judge reaching the bench without being previously called to the bar, to which Alvanley replied, "'Many a bad judge has been taken from the bench and placed at the bar.' He used to say that Brummel was the only dandelion that flourished year after year in the hotbed of the fashionable world. He had taken root. Lions were generally annual, but Brummel was perennial, and quoted a letter from Walter Scott. If you are celebrated for writing verses, or for slicing cucumbers, for being two feet taller, or two feet less than any other biped, for acting plays when you should be whipped at school, or for attending schools and institutions when you should be preparing for your grave, your notoriety becomes a talisman, an open sesame, which gives way to everything, till you are voted a bore and discarded for a new plaything. This appeared in a letter from Walter Scott to the Earl of Dalkeith, when he himself, Belzoni, Master Betty the Roscius, and old Joseph Lancaster the schoolmaster, were the lions of the season, and were one night brought together by my indefatigable old friend Lady Cork, who was the Lady of Lions of that day. General Palmer This excellent man had the last days of his life embittered by the money-lenders. He had commenced his career surrounded by every circumstance that could render existence agreeable, fortune in his early days having smiled most benignantly on him. His father was a man of considerable ability and was to the past generation what Rowland Hill is in the present day, the great benefactor of correspondence. He first proposed and carried out the mail-coach system, and letters, instead of being at the mercy of post-boys, and a private speculation in many instances, became the care of government, and were transmitted under its immediate direction. During the lifetime of Mr. Palmer, the reward due to him for his suggestions and his practical knowledge was denied, and he accordingly went to Bath and became the manager and proprietor of the theatre, occasionally treading the boards himself, for which his elegant deportment and good taste eminently qualified him. He has often been mistaken for Gentleman Palmer, whose portrait is well drawn in the memoir of Sheridan by Dr. Sigmund, prefixed to Bones' edition of Sheridan's plays. Mr. Palmer was successful in his undertaking, and at his death his son found himself the inheritor of a handsome fortune, and became a universal favourite in Bath. The corporation of that city, consisting of thirty apothecaries, were, in those borough-mongering days, the sole electors to the House of Commons and finding young Palmer hospitable and intimate with the Marquis of Bath and Lord Camden, and likewise desiring for themselves and their families free access to the most agreeable theatre in England, returned him to Parliament. He entered the army, and became a conspicuous officer in the Tenth Hussars, which, being commanded by the Prince Regent, led him at once into Carlton House, the pavilion at Brighton, and consequently into the highest society of the country, for which his agreeable manners, his amiable disposition, and his attainments admirably qualified him. 
his fortune was sufficiently large for all his wants, but unfortunately, as it turned out, the House of Commons voted to him, as the representative of his father, one hundred thousand pounds, which he was desirous of laying out to advantage. A fine opportunity, as he imagined, had presented itself to him, for in travelling in the diligence from Lyon to Paris, a journey then requiring three days, he met a charming widow, who told a tale that had not only a wonderful effect upon his susceptible heart, but upon his amply filled purse. She said her husband, who had been the proprietor of one of the finest estates in the neighbourhood of Bordeaux, was just dead, and that she was on her way to Paris to sell the property, that it might be divided, according to the laws of France, amongst the family. Owing, however, to the absolute necessity of forcing a sale, that which was worth an enormous sum would realise one quarter only of its value. She described the property as one admirably fitted for the production of wine, that it was, in fact, the next estate to the Chateau Lafitte, and would prove a fortune to any capitalist. The fascinations of this lady, and the temptation of enormous gain to the speculator, impelled the gallant colonel to offer his services to relieve her from her embarrassment, and by the time the diligence arrived in Paris he had become the proprietor of a fine domain, which was soon irrevocably fixed on him by the lady's notary in return for a large sum of money, which, had the colonel proved a man of business, would no doubt have been amply repaid, and might have become the source of great wealth. Palmer, however, conscious of his inability, looked around him for an active agent, and believed he had found one in a Mr. Gray, a man of captivating manners and good connections, but almost as useless a person as the general himself. Fully confident in his own abilities, Gray had already been concerned in many speculations, not one of which had ever succeeded but all had led to the demolition of large fortunes. Plausible in his address, and possessing many of those superficial qualities that please the multitude, he appeared to be able to secure for the claret, which was the production of the estate, a large clientele. Palmer's claret, under his auspices, began to be talked of in the clubs, and the bon vivant was anxious to secure a quantity of this highly prized wine. The patronage of the Prince Regent was considered essential, who, with his egotistical good nature, and from a kindly feeling for Palmer, gave a dinner at Carlton House, when a fair trial was to be given to his claret. A select circle of gastronomes was to be present, amongst whom was Lord Yarmouth, well known in those days by the appellation of Red Herrings, from his rubicund whiskers, hair and face, and from the town of Yarmouth, deriving its principal support from the importation from Holland of that fish. Sir Benjamin Bloomfield, Sir William Knighton, and Sir Thomas Turwitt were also of the party. The wine was produced and was found excellent, and the spirits of the party ran high, the light wine animating them without intoxication. The prince was delighted, and as usual upon such occasions, told some of his best stories, quoted Shakespeare, 
and was particularly happy upon the bouquet of the wine, as suited to the holy palmer's kiss. Lord Yarmouth alone sat in moody silence, and on being questioned as to the cause, replied that whenever he dined at His Royal Highness's table, he drank a claret which he much preferred, that which was furnished by Carbonell. The prince immediately ordered a bottle of this wine, and to give them an opportunity of testing the difference, he desired that some anchovy sandwiches should be served up. Carbonell's wine was placed upon the table. It was a claret made expressly for the London market, well dashed with Hermitage, and infinitely more to the taste of the Englishman than the delicately flavoured wine they had been drinking. The banquet terminated in the prince declaring his own wine superior to that of Palmer's, and suggesting that he should try some experiments on his estate to obtain a better wine. Palmer came from Carlton House much mortified. On Sir Thomas Turwitt attempting to console him, and saying that it was the anchovies that had spoiled the taste of the connoisseurs, the general said loudly enough to be heard by Lord Yarmouth, No, it was the confounded red herrings. A duel was very nearly the consequence. General Palmer, feeling it his duty to follow the advice of the prince, rooted out his old vines, planted new ones, tried all sorts of experiments at an immense cost, but with little or no result. He and his agent, in consequence, got themselves into all sorts of difficulties, mortgaged the property, borrowed largely, and were at last obliged to have recourse to usurers, to life assurances, and every sort of expedient to raise money. The theatre at Bath was sold, the reform in Parliament robbed him of his seat, and at last he and his agent became ruined men. A subscription would have been raised to relieve him, but he preferred ending his days in poverty to living upon the bounty of his friends. He sold his commission and was plunged in the deepest distress, while the accumulation of debt to the usurers became so heavy that he was compelled to pass through the insolvent court. Thus ended the career of a man who had been courted in society, idolised in the army, and figured as a legislator for many years. His friends, of course, fell off, and he was to be seen a mendicant in the streets of London, shunned where he once was adored. Gray, his agent, became equally involved, but marrying a widow with some money, he was enabled to make a better fight. Eventually, however, he became a prey to the money-lender, and his life ended under circumstances distressing to those who had known him in early days. Monk Lewis One of the most agreeable men of the day was Monk Lewis. As the author of The Monk and the Tales of Wonder, he not only found his way into the best circles, but had gained a high reputation in the literary world. His poetic talent was undoubted, and he was intimately connected with Walter Scott in his ballad researches. His Alonzo the Brave and the Fair Imogen was recited at the theatres, and wherever he went he found a welcome reception. His West Indian fortune and connections, and his seat in Parliament, 
gave him access to all the aristocratic circles, from which, however, he was banished upon the appearance of the fourth and last dialogue of the pursuits of literature. Had a thunderbolt fallen upon him, he could not have been more astonished than he was by the onslaught of Mr. Matthias, which led to his ostracism from fashionable society. It is not for me to appreciate the value of this satirical poem, which created such an extraordinary sensation, not only in the fashionable, but in the political world. I, however, remember that whilst at Canning's, at the Bishop of London's, and at Gifford's, it was pronounced the most classical and spirited production that had ever issued from the press. It was held up at Lord Holland's, at the Marquis of Lansdowne's, and at Brooks's, as one of the most spiteful and ill-natured satires that had ever disgraced the literary world, and one which no talent or classic law could ever redeem. Certain it is that Matthias fell foul of poor Monk Lewis for his romance. Obscenity and blasphemy were the charges laid at his door. He was acknowledged to be a man of genius and fancy, but this added only to his crime, to which was superadded that of being a very young man. The charges brought against him cooled his friends and heated his enemies. The young ladies were forbidden to speak to him, matrons even feared him, and from being one of the idols of the world he became one of the objects of its disdain. Even his father was led to believe that his son had abandoned the paths of virtue and was on the high road to ruin. Monk Lewis, unable to stand against the outcry thus raised against him, determined to try the effects of absence, and took his departure for the island in which his property was. But unfortunately for those who dissented from the ferocious judgment that was passed upon him, and for those who had discrimination enough to know that after all there was nothing very objectionable in his romance, and felt assured that posterity would do him justice, this amiable and kind-hearted man died on his passage out, leaving a blank in one variety of literature which has never been filled up. The denunciation was not followed by any other severe criticism, but editors have, in compliance with the insinuations of Matthias, omitted the passages which he pointed out as objectionable, so that the original text is seldom met with. Monk Lewis had a black servant, affectionately attached to his master, but so ridiculously did this servant repeat his master's expressions that he became the laughing-stock of all his master's friends. Brummel used often to raise a hearty laugh at Carlton House, by repeating witticisms which he pretended to have heard from Lewis's servant. Some of these were very stale, yet they were considered so good as to be repeated at the clubs, greatly adding to the reputation of the beau as a teller of good things. "'On one occasion,' said Brummel, "'I called to inquire after a young lady who had sprained her ankle. Lewis, on being asked how she was, had said in the black's presence, the doctor has seen her put her legs straight, and the poor chicken is doing well. The servant therefore told me with a mysterious and knowing look, Oh, sir, the doctor has been here. She has laid eggs, and she and the chickens are doing well. Such extravagances in those days were received as the essence of wit, and to such stories did the public give a willing ear, repeating them with unwearying zest. 
Even Sheridan's wit partook of this character, making him the delight of the prince, who ruled over the fashionable world, and whose approbation was sufficient to give currency to anything, however ludicrous and absurd. Sir Thomas Turton There is a pleasure in recalling to memory even the schoolboy pranks of men who make a figure in the world. The career of Turton promised to be a brilliant one, and had he not offended against the moral feeling of the country and lost his position, he would have mounted to the highest step in the ladder of fortune. At Eton he showed himself a dashing and a daring boy, and was looked upon by Dr. Goodall, the then headmaster, as one of his best classical scholars. By his schoolfellows he was even more highly regarded, being the acknowledged cock of the school. Amongst the qualities that endeared him to them was a fearlessness which led him into dangers and difficulties from which his pluck only could extricate him. He was a determined poacher, not one of the skulking class, but of a daring that led him to exert his abilities in Windsor Park itself, where he contrived to bag game in spite of the watchfulness of the keepers and the surveillance of the well-paid watchers of the night. On one occasion, however, by some unlucky chance, tidings of his successes reached the ears of the royal gamekeeper, who formed a plan by which to entrap him. And so nearly were they pouncing upon Turton that he was obliged to take to his heels and fly, carrying with him a hare which he had caught. The keepers followed close upon his heels until they came to the Thames, into which Turton plunged, and still holding his prize by his teeth, swam to the other side, to the astonishment and dismay of his pursuers, who had no inclination for a cold bath. Their mortification was great at seeing Turton safely landed on the other side. He reached the college in safety, and the hare served for the enjoyment of merry friends. Turton's history in after-life I will not pursue but must express my regret that he threw away golden opportunities of showing his love for classic lore, and his ability to meet the difficulties of life in the same bold way in which he swam the Thames and baffled the Windsor gamekeepers. George Smythe, the late Lord Strangford This is another friend to whom I am pleased to pay the tribute of a reminiscence, and who— if he was not as well known as most of those I have spoken of, was yet highly prized by many of the most distinguished persons, and formed one of a circle that had great influence in England. Being the son of the well-known Lord Strangford, the translator of Camoish, he had a first place in aristocratic society, and had he not given himself up to indulgences and amusements, might have reached the rank of statesman. The late Lord Strangford was distinguished by those external qualifications which are everywhere acceptable. His manners were polished and easy, his conversation elegant and witty, and these, added to great personal attractions, gave him a charm which was generally felt. Disraeli, Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton, and the leading men of the day were his associates. When Lord Aberdeen became Minister for Foreign Affairs, he selected George Smythe as under-secretary, in which capacity he acquitted himself with great ability. 
He could not, however, act under Lord Palmerston, and rather than do so gave up his position. He did not long survive, but died very young, just as he was beginning to learn the value of his rare abilities, and had ascertained how best they might have been of use to his country. THE HONOURABLE GEORGE TALBOT I have a very vivid recollection of George Talbot, a brother of the late Earl of Shrewsbury, and who was a fashionable man about town, of whom there are many anecdotes in circulation. The only one that took my fancy was related to me in Paris, where he was, as usual, in the midst of the gayest of the gay, recklessly spending his money, and oftentimes resorting for resources to the gambling-table, where at last he was thoroughly pigeoned. Talbot had tried in vain all the usual means of recruiting his empty purse. Being a Roman Catholic, like most of the members of one of the oldest families in Great Britain, he was a regular attendant upon the ceremonies of his church, and acquainted with all the clergy in Paris. So he took the resolution of going to his confessor, unburdening his conscience, and at the same time seeking counsel from the Holy Father as to the best way of raising the wind. After entering minutely into his condition, and asking the priest how he could find funds to pay his debts and take him home, the confessor seemed touched by his tale of woe, and after much apparent consideration recommended him to trust in providence. Talbot seemed struck with such sensible advice, and promised to call again in a few days. This second visit was made in due course. He again mourned over his condition, and requested the priest's advice and assistance. His story was listened to, as before, with much commiseration, but he was again recommended to trust in Providence. Talbot came away quite crestfallen, and evidently with little hope of any immediate relief. After the lapse of a few days, however, he appeared again before his confessor, apparently much elated, and invited the worthy abbé to dine with him at the Rocher du Concal. This invitation was gladly accepted, the Holy Father not doubting but that he should have all the delicacies in the land, to which, in common with the rest of the clergy, he had no objection. Nor was he disappointed. The dinner was recherché. The best the establishment could furnish was placed before them, and most heartily and lovingly did the worthy abbé devote himself to what was offered. At the end of the repast, the carte à payer was duly furnished, but what was the astonishment of the reverend guest when Talbot declared that his purse was completely au sec, and that it had been a long time empty, but that upon this occasion, as upon all others, he trusted, as the abbé had advised him, in providence. The abbé Pécheron, recovering from his surprise, and being of a kind and generous disposition, laughed heartily at Talbot's impudence, and feeling that he had deserved this rebuke, pulled out his purse, paid for the dinner, and did what he should have done at first, wrote to the members of Talbot's family, and obtained for him such assistance as enabled him to quit Paris and return home, where he afterwards led a more sober life. End of section 8 Recording by Ruth Golding